Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and this is the May 2020 episode of the podcast. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Kyle Howarth and Dr. Joby Thopel, both of whom are authors of the emergency medicine practice issue on the emergency department management of cellulitis and other skin and soft tissue infections. So we're talking cellulitis, abscesses, necrotizing fasciitis, diagnostics, labs, and so much more. I'm excited to share it with you today. Before we dive in, I want to remind you about the EB Medicine mobile app available in both the Apple and Google app stores, and also to remind you of the upcoming Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine Conference, which this year is going to be held in Ponta Vedra, Florida from June 22nd through the 26th. And as always, ebmedicine.net filled with just volumes of information on emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine, both of the monthly articles, special issues, lots of trauma and stroke CME, and of course, links to our free and open access medical education site where you can read lots of free references and access more information about the podcast. Again, that's ebmedicine.net. And now, without any further ado, let's talk skin and soft tissue infections. I'm Dr. Kyle Howarth. I'm a resident over at UT Southwestern's emergency medicine residency program and working primarily at Parkland Hospital. Hi, I'm Dr. Joby Thopo. I am an assistant professor at UT Southwestern, and uh, I work pretty closely with Kyle. <laughs> He's one of my residents at uh, UT Southwestern Parkland Hospital. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. We are talking about the article that you two authored, the Emergency Department Management of Cellulitis and Other Skin and Soft Tissue Infections, which was released by EB Medicine this month. So if you have access, I highly encourage you to go and read it. There are some outstanding resources in that article that we're going to be talking about today. Before we dive into that subject, tell me why cellulitis? What's the big deal about cellulitis in the emergency department? Sure. Yeah. One of the things that stood off the page for me on choosing this topic was it's a very prevalent pathology. Millions of cases of skin and soft tissue infections present annually to emergency departments. And then also it's a very relevant topic, I felt, to all emergency departments from small rural hospitals to highly academic urban medical centers. And then diving a little bit more into it, Previously, the diagnosis and management was really heavy on clinician experience, clinician gestalt, and little focus was on evidence-based medicine. And I personally have felt many times on shift wondering, is there, you know, a, a abscess pocket to incise and not really knowing where to go from there or where to reference. So for me, those were kind of the reasons that initially brought me to the subject. And I think also there's a wide array of presentations of cellulitis. But if you go through the article, you can see we have many different types of cellulitis, many different types of soft tissue infections we come across on a daily basis. And most of this is clinical diagnosis, and we don't really have a distinct test to really identify what pathogen we're looking at. So it's based on experience. And so if you look, most of our recommendations come from quite a long time ago, 2014 in medicine, that's a huge time frame. So we wanted to do something that would help people treat something that we see on a daily basis. 
And before we get into the discussion of all of those things, let's talk about a little bit of terminology. So we're talking about skin and soft tissue infections, but not all things are equal. There are several terms in the article, erysipelas, cellulitis, fasciitis, and purulent cellulitis. Tell me about the distinctions between those things. Sure. All of these infections are, are very similar and, and often just depends on the degree of the infection and how deep that infection is spreading, whether it's through the dermis. And you start very superficial with an erysipelas. Classically, that's going to have more distinct margins compared to a cellulitis. Um, you go slightly deeper, you get to the cellulitis, and then go deeper than that. You're starting to get into the necrotizing soft tissue infections, the necrotizing fasciitis, the necrotizing myositis. And those are often just fancy ways of describing where the infection is. But I, I do appreciate you bringing up the distinction between a, a purulent and a, and a non-purulent skin and soft tissue infection. Really important to differentiate the two because, as we'll talk about a little bit here coming up, the Infectious Disease Society of America often has their guidelines change based on the presence of purulence. And this is because of microbiology differencing, differentiating between the two, and therefore this influences our antibiotic selection as well. So a very important distinction there. And on the topic of microbiology and pathogens, let's talk about what some of the most common pathogens are for some of these types of infections. What kinds of bacteria are we usually treating? Sure, sure. Yeah, great question. Mainly gram positives for our standard skin and soft tissue infections for our cellulitis. Um, for our non-purulent cellulitis, we're going to be gravitating more towards strep and streptococcus. Now we get into the purulent type of cellulitis or the abscesses, and that's going to actually gravitate towards more staph aureus, which does include MRSA. So gram positives for sure, the most common organisms involved. And I think we also have to consider our community prevalence of MRSA as well. And so I think that plays a huge role. And I think in your hospital system, they have antibiograms and so forth to really give you a sense of how prevalent MRSA is in your community. And so that also will define how often you'll treat for or how often you'll cover for MRSA in, in these situations. But for the most part, most infections are strep pyogenes or group A strep. And then you two mentioned that there are some special scenarios. They're actually listed in the article on page three, table one. These are kind of unique exposures. Tell me more about those. Sure. Yeah. And I think the goal of that table was just to keep a, a broad differential. And I'll be the first to admit it's tough to ask a lot of follow-up questions regarding unique exposures in a busy emergency department shift. But something to keep in mind that can actually influence management is this um, cellulitis that's presenting in front of us. Is there a history of a dog bite from three or four or five days ago that they're not going to mention unless you specifically ask? Then we start to consider some other microbiology like pastorella or a more of a polymicrobial infection. If there's a traumatic exposure with wound or dirt exposure or clostridium, perfringens, fresh water or salt water, consider aromonas, vibrio, you know, the list does go on and on, but it it does actually help to ask just a few questions and see if we can tease out a little bit more of those unique exposures when they come along. Yeah, here near the Gulf Coast, the saltwater exposure question becomes very relevant. So that is something we're accustomed to asking, but I don't usually ask about whether or not there was a, a dog bite or a distant animal exposure or even freshwater exposure, really. I'm not in the habit of asking that question either. Mm -hmm. So that's it's a good point. 
on the spectrum of these infections is the necrotizing soft tissue infections. And in the article, there is a classification system from the IDSA for these necrotizing infections. Is that something that's helpful to add to our nomenclature in the ED? Yeah, and, and just to go over that that classification system real quick, so there's actually a couple different types of, of ways to classify necrotizing soft tissue infe infections. And going through, I, I definitely found that this three-tier uh, system was the most commonly utilized. The IDSA classifies type 1 as more polymicrobial. It's definitely the most common. It's those classic older patients with all the comorbidities. Includes the classic Fournier's gangrene, the historical gastrine gangrene that you know was very big in World War One, things like that. Whereas type 2, definitely less common. It's more monomicrobial, the streptococcus group A strep. Really important to note here, though, that it's not a gas-producing organism. We'll touch on that a little bit later. And then type 3, a little bit less common from that. Those are your gram-negative waterborns. Now, for the emergency clinician, knowing exact type is not really as clinically relevant. We're not going to be receiving culture results to make this distinction. If we're getting a necrotizing soft tissue infection, we're going to start broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy, something like Vanxos and Clinda, and then hopefully giving them to a surgeon as quickly as possible. But I think what to take from this is knowing that there's three different types and also knowing that not all necrotizing soft tissue infections are indeed gas producing, influences what you might see on a physical exam, gross decrepitus, or what you may or may not see on imaging. So I think that's kind of what we can take from that is from the emergency side. And just to add to that, most of these patients who come in with necrotizing soft tissue infections, a majority of them are going to be septic because you've gotten to a point where you have gone into the deeper layers of the skin and more than likely you're probably going into a systemic infection. So when they're coming in septic, there's a high morbidity and mortality associated with sepsis. And so our main goal is to try and curb the progression from sepsis to septic shock. And so we're going to go with the big guns of our antibiotic therapy and we're going to try to make sure we are covering everything that we can think of when we're dealing with systemic infections. And for the most part, again, NSTI, just like cellulitis, is generally a clinical diagnosis. If we are suspecting NSTI, we generally go straight to a surgical consult as well. So for us in our practice, I don't think the classification system helps too much, but it's good to be aware of it, but it's not gonna change our management in the ED. Agreed, definitely. Okay, so the classification system may be helpful, you know, in the hospital for further therapy, maybe for antimicrobial uh, specific antibiotic selection. But in the ED, if there's a necrotizing soft tissue infection that we are suspecting or an NSTI, then mm -hmm. the the therapy uh, is still the same. The algorithm is, you know, your surgical consultation, your broad spectrum antibiotics, because these are going to be the very very sick patients. Most definitely. Most definitely. And oftentimes when these patients, we won't generally know the actual pathogen until the patient goes to the OR and gets cleaned out because that would be the only way to actually culture these. So it's definitely more for inpatient hospitalization and further planning and treatment down the line. But in the ED, it's not very helpful. Yeah. Makes our job simple. <laughs> That's right. Thankfully. Yeah. Uh, now, 
we don't spend a lot of time talking about differential diagnosis, but for this particular process, this can be helpful because we often see people who have changes that look like cellulitis, but they're bilateral. And then we're kind of scratching our heads going, well, you know, if an infection occurring bilaterally and symmetrically seems exceedingly unlikely, what are some of those mimics there for cellulitis that can present perhaps bilateral that are important to keep in mind? Yeah, the differential for these is always tricky and something that still can trick me and hold me up from time to time. Things that initially come up are things like DVT, a deep venous thrombosis, uh, venous basis dermatitis, as well as peripheral artery disease. These classically present bilaterally, but if looking at them just on an individual basis can easily trick you into thinking that this is an infectious um, etiology. But like you mentioned before, highly unlikely that you're going to have a bilateral spread. And so I, I think looking at the unilateral versus the bilateral aspect of this is, is what I use and is what you know, one of the tables shows in the article as an initial branch point on considering these things in your differential. And then also, I think history also plays a huge role as well. If someone's pointing to a bite or they have the subjective fevers, it might point more towards a infectious etiology. Whereas if someone has longstanding history of venous stasis and bilateral lower extremity edema, you'll often see color changes also associated with longstanding lower extremity edema. And that would point you more towards a stasis dermatitis or venous stasis. Another way to differentiate infectious versus edema would be just to raise the leg above the level of the heart. And if some of it clears, that usually points more towards an edema kind of picture as opposed to a cellulitis picture. It's something that I commonly use, but I don't know what the sensitivity and specificity of that is to <laughs> actually use, but it's definitely something that might be helpful in the clinical picture, at least when you're trying to make your decisions. Yeah, I, I agree. The acuity or the chronicity of the presentation is is hugely important, both to identify the chronic mimickers, but also the if a, if a presentation is rapidly progressing, then also realizing that we might have seen something necrotizing to be involved. So yeah, definitely important to consider. And then these things don't necessarily occur in isolation, right? So in our geriatric population with multiple medical problems and chronic lymphedema and peripheral artery disease, they may have chronic changes in both lower extremities and then point to one and say, this one is worse. So that history becomes even more important from them or maybe a family member uh, who says their legs always look like the right one, but the left one today looks way worse. And so sometimes there is bilateral disease plus some new change and not just isolated one or the other. So it, it can get pretty complicated for sure. When we talk about the evaluation and we start pre-hospital, our EMS colleagues are there transporting the patients. Now, most of these patients, I think, come by private vehicle unless they're severely ill or have multiple comorbidities and can't ambulate. But if they do come by EMS, what kinds of things can our pre-hospital colleagues pay attention to that might help us with the diagnosis? Yeah, like you mentioned, most people are going to you know, present individually outside of those patients who are acutely septic. And I think pretty much that is the role for EMS and the pre-hospital care is really identifying which patients are of concern for sepsis and that way they can benefit from an expedited workup. But ultimately, usually skin and septic infections 
don't have a huge role in the, in the field. Most of these infections are generally self-limited and generally confined to the skin. So systemic findings may not be that prevalent in this for at least for soft tissue, the simple soft tissue infections. And so majority of patients that will come in, they'll be walking in to the emergency room or they'll be driving themselves into the emergency room. Mm -hmm. Um, but as Kyle had mentioned, if they're septic, those are the things that really would prompt awareness that should make the physician aware. And then once they finally make it to the ED and it's our turn to begin asking questions, we touched on this a little bit in the differential and when we talked about the the necrotizing infections, but what kinds of things are we trying to elicit in the history from the patient? Yeah, definitely focusing on risk factors, getting a, a good medical history. Do they have a history of diabetes or the increases in morbidity and mortality in these patients? IV drug use, are they immunocompromised for some reason? All of these things predispose these patients to more severe types of infection and should just put us on a little bit more of an alert when evaluating these patients. We talked about the unique exposures a little bit, as well as the acuity on if this patient is presenting with a acute infection as opposed to a chronic masquerader, such as the stasis dermatitis, the PAD, but then also on the very rapidly progressing lesions that should be sending off alarm bells for, for necrotizing infections. So I think w- with our history, that's kind of where we're, where we're going towards. Good. And then for examination, anything specific on physical exam we need to keep in mind? Yeah. Yeah. And de- determining the severity of, of skin infections based on physical exam is challenging and definitely takes experience. I think when you get a, a questionable patient, the most important question that should be going in your head is, is this a necrotizing soft tissue infection? And we're classically taught to look for crepitus, brulee, skin necrosis to identify these necrotizing infections. But looking at you know, several meta-analysis, several studies here, looking at the frequency of reported physical exam findings in necrotizing infections, it shows the unfortunate reality that really the most common signs of necrotizing infections are swelling, pain, erythema, which of course are always present for our more benign infections as well, just to make things a little bit more tricky for us. And one study in particular found that those, you know, classic necrotizing physical exam findings present in less than a quarter of the time is listed, uh, boule being present about 25% of the time, skin necrosis, 24%, crepitus around 20% of the time. So Really more specific findings, if they're present, definitely is indicative, but hard to use as sensitive exam findings in ruling out necrotizing infections. Crepitus especially, I think we're, we're taught to look for that, but remembering there are a lot of non-gas producing organisms that cause necrotizing infections. And so just really emphasizing the specificity for these findings over their sensitivity. Yeah, really just hitting home that having those findings is really specific and can tell you that you should really consider strongly consider a necrotizing soft tissue infection but their absence doesn't exclude that as a diagnosis and in the case examples in the article there was a specific focus on just looking at the skin meaning undressing your patient and making sure to actually examine those areas which is very difficult to do nowadays in the time of examining patients in triage or waiting rooms, but you really do need to get a good look in the groin area and around the genitals and the perineum and all of these areas where they could be hiding these infections. So making sure to expose that skin is important. Definitely in the, in the diabetic population, 
trying to make a habit of that. Hopefully. All right, let's move on to diagnostics. So we love to talk about point of care ultrasound. Is there a good use for point of care ultrasound to help us in these types of infections? How how am I going to use my ultrasound for these patients? Yeah, ultrasound has a huge clinical utility here for skin and soft tissue infections. A frequent dilemma, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is that it's tricky to decide. Uh, you know, a fr- frequent dilemma that we have is. Does this patient need an IND, an incision and drainage, in addition to antibiotics? And so using ultrasound to help with that clinical decision-making, very, very useful. Multiple studies looked at the use of ultrasound to identify an abscess in patients versus just a cellulitis. And a couple of studies actually showed a sensitivity in the 90%, 96%, very high specificity as well clearly showing a benefit and people are using this. I think one of the reasons physicians love it so much also is that it's very easy images to obtain and interpret. Just put the probe on the affected area and take a look at what you see. When we see cellulitis, we usually see something called cobblestoning. There's a couple of good uh, images in the article explaining what that really looks like. And then if you're looking, if you're seeing an abscess, you'll see a very distinct hypoechoic uh, circle, obviously, um, showing a nice pus pocket of infection there. So the data really showing that point of care ultrasound is easy to use for, for skin soft tissue infections and highly sensitive and specific as well. It's, it's something that I think all of us should be utilizing for, for most of these patients. And I think also just to keep in mind that people who are trying to interpret what the ultrasound is showing should also be aware of what vascular structures look like and what other structures would look like on ultrasound so that they can actually distinguish an abscess and fluid collection from another vascular structure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay. And then what about just plain film imaging? Is there still a role for that in these infections? When we're talking about plain films, a lot of people are using them in the context of necrotizing soft tissue infections, looking for gas. Um, and just to really hit home on the point that the gold standard for diagnosis of these is, is operative exploration. If you're concerned about this and you believe this, you should be calling a surgeon, starting antibiotic therapy, get them move, moving quickly. However, I also realize that this is the real world and a lot of times imaging is obtained and questionable patients and looking at x-rays first don't seem to have a, a lot of sensitivity, which is concerning and a lot of studies were recommending against the use of plain films and looking at necrotizing soft tissue infections. A couple studies finding only around, again, a quarter of patients with NSTIs had gas present on plain films. And that's, I think, a component of the plain film not picking that up in some patients and then other patients having bacteria that, again, are not gas producing. So a lot of studies moving away from using plain films and diagnostics for NSTIs. Yeah, as Kyle said, essentially our plain films are highly specific, but not very sensitive. And so to rule out using a plain film is not very helpful. Again, NSTIs are clinical diagnoses and the gold standard is for surgical exploration. So we need to get a surgical consult immediately when we're considering this. And we don't wait for imaging studies for that purpose. We can use laboratory studies and the patient's condition to help bolster the evidence that we provide to our surgeon colleagues. But ultimately, they are the ones, it's at their discretion as to what happens next, but we can push for our patients and advocate for our patients if we're really concerned. Good. 
And then there was mention of CT imaging in the article. Is there a role for that opposed to x-ray or in addition to? Is that helpful? I think CT imaging would be helpful for the surgeons, especially in, in surgical planning, because it gives them a sense of where in the skin layers that the infection is. If it's a very superficial infection, it can basically save the patient from going to the OR. But if you start to see infections in the myofascial layers or the fascial layers, that generally indicates that this is a deeper space infection and likely will require surgical debridement. And so the surgeons love to have the CTs there because it helps them plan their method of attack in terms of these infections. So CT imaging is sufficiently sensitive and specific that if the surgeon obtained it and, and then reviewed the images, they could actually postpone surgery based on the results. The, the clinical exam doesn't necessarily trump the CT findings in that scenario? It, again, it depends on how, how strongly we feel about the patient. It could be a very early infection. If we feel that the patient is moving towards a very systemic and systemic infection, we have, we can still push our surgeon colleagues to make the case that this could be a necrotizing infection, even though we don't see it on the CT. In terms of specificity and sensitivity, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head in for CT imaging, but uh, it's still a clinical diagnosis. It's, it's definitely higher than plain films for sure. Some upwards of 85, 88% for sensitivity, which is not terrible. But I, I think it, like Dr. Thopel was saying, if, if you're concerned for an NSTI, one, you're probably not waiting for a CT, but two, if you do obtain the CT, there's a lot basically that can also muddy the waters. So I think that's kind of where, where CT hands and all that. And that's kind of a gray area because it's very patient specific on how confident you are and how sick the patient is, how much time is on the table. So a little bit of a case by case basis, I'd say. And as Kyle had mentioned earlier, you, you don't wait for imaging studies. If you're worried about an ST, NSTI, you go straight to a surgical consult. Yeah, so this is something you might entertain after discussion with the surgeon at their request, perhaps, or something of that sort. Correct. Yeah. Okay, good. Good to know. And then for labs, we talked about several things. So let's start with just cultures. Now, there's a distinction between blood cultures and wound cultures. For us in the ED, are either of these helpful? Yeah, so this goes back and forth here. Starting with the blood cultures, you have the Infectious Disease Society of America, you have the American Association of uh, Family Practitioners, both recommending against obtaining blood cultures for your standard skin and soft tissue infections. Now this comes from really their own independent research and then finding basically that the yield for blood cultures is very low. It's not very cost effective. Looking more about the recent evidence-based literature, also finding that in immunocompetent adults and in children that were admitted for uncomplicated SSDIs, again, not really much of a utility for the reasons mentioned above. However, really that was just looking and all the literature was for uncomplicated, more run-of-the-mill, simple SSTIs. Not too much out there on, on complicated SSTIs or, you know, if a patient is becoming septic, then that kind of changes things. You're incorporating your sepsis bundle um, and obtaining cultures, antibiotics regardless. So. To kind of summarize the, the blood cultures, most recommendations would actually be against blood cultures for your routine skin and soft tissue infections. Yeah, and those are mostly the patients that are going home. 
So really, exactly. you know, blood culture is not helpful in anybody you're going to discharge home anyway in that kind right. of scenario. And I think that's pretty reasonable for most clinicians out there. If you're concerned about sepsis, then blood cultures may be helpful in that sense. But at the same time, it's not going to be very helpful for your management if you're if the patients are going home. Uh, wound cultures may be beneficial in the setting of abscesses. But at the same time, if the patient is going home, you're not going to get the wound culture back in time to inform your treatment decision. But it could guide treatment failure if we do get it. So it might be worthwhile in, in for an abscess. But routine blood cultures and simple cellulitis and abscesses without any systemic findings is generally not very helpful. Good. So simple cases, patients we think might go home or are likely to go home, not really any benefit in obtaining either kinds of culture. If they're being admitted or perhaps it's a complicated case, then perhaps there is some benefit, but it's not going to help us in the ED initially anyway, because it's going to take a while for those results to come back. Yeah, right. I think it's a fair summary, definitely. Okay. How about other laboratory tests, things like the CBC, the BMP, the routine labs, any utility in any of those things? I think that goes in the same realm as blood cultures. If it's a simple cellulitis, I don't believe that uh, CDC, BMP, any sort of laboratory results is going to really help you. It's, again, a clinical diagnosis. And if we're concerned about a cellulitis, there's no systemic findings, then those laboratory findings won't be very helpful. But if there's signs of a fever or there's any concerns for sepsis, then those laboratory findings will help guide admission treatment, essentially. Good. And then there is some discussion in the article about a scoring system called the Laboratory Risk Indicator for Necrotizing Fasciitis, or the L-R-I-N-E-C score. Very terribly built acronym that is <laughs> completely unpronounceable. Uh, they could have gotten a little bit more creative. Let's say you have a patient and you're trying to determine how sick they are. Is there any utility in calculating this score, or, or what is the benefit of this scoring system? You know, ultimately not too much benefit. So the Lorinic score, however you choose to pronounce it, it's a great idea, right? Our difficulty and our struggle is identifying these necrotizing infections. It definitely has a place for something like this. But a lot of studies showing not really as reliable as the initial pilot study hoped it to be. It came out in 2004, basically takes into account lab values such as CRP, white blood count, hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, glucose. Pulls that together and is a scoring system. If it's high enough, it's considered necrotizing. But again, even with the pilot study, retrospective, small sample population, subsequent studies haven't really shown to have really high sensitivities to be confident in just using a learning score to rule out a necrotizing infection. Definitely do not show evidence for that. And, and personally, I'd feel pretty uncomfortable just using that as well instead of the clinical presentation in front of us. I agree. And it's got a fairly decent specificity. So if it's high enough, then yes, definitely we should consider it. But if it's low, it doesn't rule it out. It could be very early in the infection. Generally, our surgeon colleagues tend to use this a little bit more than we do. But in the ED, I don't think this is something that's going to be very helpful. If we're concerned about an NSTI, we should just go down the, the treatment path and call our surgeon colleagues. Good. And then when it comes time to choose antibiotic coverage for our ED patient, there's a great table from the IDSA here on page 10, table four, antibiotic dosages for the 
non-purulent cellulitis and purulent cellulitis, and then even complicated infections. Anything new about any of these choices, or is this pretty standard? I mean, it seems like the oral options are still cephalexin, maybe clindamycin. Uh, for the purulent ones, we throw in some trimethoprenin sulfa, perhaps even doxy is even listed on here as an option, not something I use very often here in our region, but still an option. And then for the complicated ones, it's, these seem most in line with our six septic patients. There's vancomycin, there's clindamycin, plus some others depending on risk factors. Is that about right? Anything unique come across in the antibiotic selection? Not particularly. And I think it's going to vary a little bit by your local antibiogram, what our bugs are most susceptible to. But then just keeping in mind your, your purulent, your non-purulent, your strep versus your staph, what's more likely kind of tailor antibiotic therapy. But you know, for the most part, yeah, the, those tables and the graph really do a nice job of kind of outlining the antibiotic options there. Good. Let's take one moment and talk about some special populations. So IV drug users can be particularly challenging. What kinds of things do we need to keep in mind when we're examining one of them who has a skin and soft tissue infection? Yeah, most definitely. We, and we see a lot um, over at the county hospital here in, in Dallas. Always keep in mind higher risk for tetanus, higher risk for botulism, higher risk for necrotizing soft tissue infection. These are rare presentations for sure, but should be in the back of your mind with this patient population. And the other thing is just to consider being more thorough with your physical exam, auscultating, listening for a heart murmur. This can often influence further diagnostic studies and even change management and disposition. You know, this patient that might have been going home with a simple cellulitis is now coming in with a valve vegetation. So just things to keep in mind with this unique patient population. I also just want to add to that, and this is based on personal experience with botulism and tetanus. You have to consider that when IV drug users are skin popping or injecting, they're essentially changing the floor of the skin and injecting that into deeper areas. And if there's any Clostridium species there, they are anaerobes and they love to get deeper into the skin and can form infections. And so considering vaccination status is very important. I definitely had a case not too long ago where we had an unvaccinated IV drug user who ended up developing tetanus, which is not something we see very often. And so it's definitely worthwhile to at least ask in your history about vaccination status when you're concerned about wound infections with IV drug users. And another population is the immunocompromised patient. Anything unique about their presentation we need to keep in mind? I think just also considering not only bacterial etiologies, but fungal, viral, parasitic causes with these specific patients. And then again, keeping in mind why they're immunocompromised. Is this a drug eruption? Is this chemotherapy or radiation therapy-induced reaction? Are we seeing a graft-versus-host disease? Going back to just our, our mimickers, right? Our mimickers, those skin and soft tissue infections. These patients have a few extra things to just consider and keep on the differential. Okay, and then lastly is the diabetic population. What kinds of things do we need to know about them? Yeah, as we touched upon a couple times before, these patients are just really at a higher risk for developing more severe infections, really higher increased morbidity, increased mortality in diabetic patients that get skin infections. So putting a focus on a, a thorough examination, looking in the genital and the um, 
groin regions is uncomfortable, of course, especially if we're doing it in a triage setting and busy emergency department. Sometimes that's what we're limited to, but we just don't want to miss a fourniase. So keeping in mind the high risk of diabetes in, in this patient population. Right. And if you have a patient who comes in frequently with cellulitis or you've seen in their electronic medical record that they've come in multiple times for this, diabetes should be also on your differential as to one of the reasons why they may be presenting with recurrent cellulitis because diabetes does have a have the capability of lowering your immune system. That's why glycemic control is very important in the management of infection. Definitely. That's a great point, actually. So this may be their presentation for the diagnosis of diabetes as opposed to someone with a known diagnosis. So something to keep in uh, in mind when you see people who are having recurrent visits. That's an excellent point. Now let's talk about abscesses. So when we're trying to incise, drain, and get rid of abscesses, we've got a couple of options, things that have generally or historically been performed like uh, wound irrigation and wound packing. And then There is a good discussion in the article about some newer techniques like loop drainage. So tell me what the evidence tells us now about uh, any of these things, wound irrigation, packing, and this loop drainage technique. Sure. And like you mentioned, so many of these common practices of of abscess management are antiquated and have just continued to persist without really significant evidence to back them up. Another important point to to discuss here is that abscess ranks as one of the most painful emergency department procedures when you ask patients. And so definitely we can improve this. Irrigation is one of those classically taught management techniques. I know I was certainly taught it as a med student. It leads to increased procedure time, patients in more pain, clinicians are being exposed to all sorts of unpleasantness. And so there are a couple of studies actually that have been done that showed patients receiving irrigation did not have any decreased in, uh, incidence of further intervention at follow-up, at a 30-day follow-up. So that's encouraging. And so not as much of a role for irrigation. I know this is something that I've kind of started to um, decrease in my own practice. Packing is always a controversial topic as well. A lot of studies going into this, and it goes back and forth, but for simple abscesses that are smaller, less than five centimeters. A couple studies looked and found that there actually wasn't a decreased need for intervention after incision and drainage with packing. So packing did not bring too much to the table. It did not lead to decreased interventions further down the road and led to increased patient discomfort and more complex wound care management, which might seem simple for us, but for um, the layman is confusing. And then also talking about possible new techniques like the the loop drainage technique, just to describe this real quick, it's it's a less invasive way of performing incision and drainage. The clinician actually just makes two small incisions. They'll deloculate through those small incisions and then pass a vessel loop, something like a Penrose drain or even a surgical glove through those and actually leave that in to help facilitate drainage. You now looking at study results from this actually showed a lot of reduced pain both from the procedure and from the wound care going home, which is very encouraging. So would would definitely recommend that EM clinicians consider this as a at least a non-inferior alternative to our standard IND and perhaps even having benefit in certain areas for the patient. Right. I agree. And I think the loop drainage technique is unique 
in that it's definitely helpful in terms of healing afterwards, after the fact, with an abscess, particularly we make a rather sizable incision to drain the abscess and try to clear all loculations and clear all the purulent drainage that may be in the abscess. But with the loop drainage, we essentially allow it to drain on its own, which I think will help with healing and patient comfort. And according to the study in the New England Journal, it seems like it's not inferior. I don't know if this is the same for larger abscesses. It's very similar to wound packing. It's a fairly new technique. So I think the research is still out on that. But in terms of loop drainage, I think for the smaller abscesses, I think it's definitely worthwhile to try and definitely something that patients would appreciate more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a great image of this technique on page 13. So if you've never seen it before, this is essentially two small incisions, then tunneling under the skin, tying a tube through both of them, and then externally knotting it. And when we do this, are we sending them home and just telling the patient to cut this themselves 10 days or something of that sort, or when the drainage is reduced? Or was there any mention in the article about them returning to the ED to have this removed? The, the article suggested that the patient should come back to be evaluated typically in the same fashion that we often ask our abscess patients when we make a pretty large sizable incision to come back just for a wound check to make sure that it's adequately draining mainly to prevent treatment failure ultimately but yes i think that it would be worthwhile it's dependent on how severe the abscess is how large the abscess is i i feel but ultimately if the patient were to come in, they can always cut the drain themselves, but I think it would be beneficial for them to have a physician take a look at it to make sure that they're adequately draining. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I kind of like the idea of having to make only two smaller incisions and tie a little Penrose drain or something of that sort in there uh, and then just leave it in place as opposed to having to make a large incision and, and drain a cavity and then have the patient have to deal with that hole for a while with wound care. So. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting concept and I, I really do like this image. It's quite clear and really doesn't look to be very difficult to do at all. It may actually take less time than a typical incision and drainage. And we can probably get away with local anesthesia topical to yeah. uh, perform this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the last decision point for us in the emergency department then is disposition, trying to decide who gets to go home and who needs to be observed or admitted to the hospital. Any guidance from the literature on making that decision? You know, if you have your simple abscesses are going to be discharges. You have your necrotizing infections that are going to be admitted, of course. It's really those borderline cases that, that cause some inner turmoil. And, you know, these borderline cases do not really have a good way of categorizing versus based on the severity or the disposition. There wasn't too much out there, in all honesty, that could kind of sway a recommendation one way or the other or had a good algorithm, at least that I could find. A topic that I thought was actually really relevant, though, was considering ED observation, the ED OBS unit. I know we have a, a great OBS unit at Parkland. It is a, is a good middle ground for patients that you're just a little bit unsure of that maybe a little bit more monitoring before they present themselves or some continued antibiotic therapy for larger cellulitis presentations, larger abscesses. Um, just, and, and it's a very common, having these ED ops is very common and actually cellulitis is one of the most common reasons that patients go to OBS. I think about eight to 10% of all 
OBS admits are, are cellulitis when I was looking at one study. So uh, a good bridge point. And if your hospital doesn't have an observation unit, maybe that's something that you bring up with administration to. Yeah. And you mentioned in the article, this is table seven, page 14, the American College of Emergency Physicians Emergency Department observation unit exclusion criteria lists just a handful of things that might prevent you from putting somebody into observation as opposed to making them inpatient. It's an interesting list. Severe pain is one of them, which is understandable. But then there's tissue necrosis, neck abscesses, peripheral vascular disease, foreign bodies, bite wounds, and then specific locations it lists, the hand, orbits, joints, the scrotum, and then the neck, as we mentioned above, with the neck abscesses. So some interesting things to note there. If you're going to put the patient into observation, these might be exclusion criteria you keep easily at hand to keep in mind that perhaps these are more complicated patients than they might appear to us in the ED. Yeah, yeah. And all those exclusion criteria are just basically trying to stay away from potential infections that could develop into something worse. You know, you talk about the, the scrotal or the neck type of infections. Of course, that's a good... Um, progress to something that's a little bit more serious. And you don't want to put those type of patients in the OBS unit. And again, if you're kind of wavering back and forth between ED OBS and hospitalists, I find a, a really easy way to just call up both of them, talk over the case with both the hospitalist and the OBS provider and see what we can come to as an agreement and what's best for the patient, where they should belong. Fantastic. Well, there's a great algorithm, uh, sort of a summary of most of what we discussed on page 17 that kind of guides you step by step through the decision tree for the patient with cellulitis, and then lots of tables and images in the article that are exceptionally helpful. So if you have access, I highly recommend you read through it and keep it in your favorites on the app so you can access it while you're on shift. I find it to be exceptionally helpful. Thank you both of you for joining us today to talk about your article. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to be sure to mention before we sign off? I think one thing that just to mention briefly is the use of antibiotics for the treatment of abscesses. I think that might be beneficial to our listeners. Yeah. Ultimately, there's a lot of controversy as to whether or not abscesses should be treated with antibiotics. And there are some articles recent trials which suggest that adding Bactrim to treatment of a simple abscess can prevent treatment failure. For the most part, commonly, we generally don't treat an abscess um, with antibiotics, mainly because it's a localized infection. And once we clear the drainage, more often than not, the infection should get cleared over time. But um, in cases where there's an overlying cellulitis, antibiotics could be helpful. But it is definitely something to consider. Yeah, so a little bit of a more recent debate. I trained in a setting where we did not cover abscesses with antibiotics, but with some of the recent literature coming out, it does call that into question for things that are maybe a little bit more borderline. Perhaps there is a little bit more cellulitis than we're typically accustomed to, and those patients might actually benefit. So that that's an excellent point, uh, especially when we're talking about the MRSA or the resistant staph species. That's That's something that has been coming up in the literature and in conversations more and more often, especially with my students and extenders as opposed to just colleagues, but whether or not to cover someone with antibiotics is a common question. So that's an excellent point. Yeah. And it's those patients that benefit from the antibiotics with Bactrim, especially is are those patients that end up being colonized with MRSA, you know, 
Great. Well, thanks again, both of you, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And again, ebmedicine.net gets you access to the article. If you don't have it, I highly recommend you go and get it or find it in your mobile app. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Pleasure being on. Well, friends, that's a wrap for this month's episode of Amplify. Again, I'm your host, Sam Ashu, and I'm so happy you're a listener. Please click on the link for the listener survey in the podcast notes and come visit us at ebmedicine.net. Don't forget about the Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine Conference, and we'll see you soon. Be safe. Be safe.